All right. So let's uh, as we begin, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we do th- give you thanks for the ways that you present yourself to us. You show us to be um, able to accomplish everything in us. Um, and even in moments like these, our own faith is tested. Even a person who comes campground to campground, teaches university students all about life with you, God, uh, still relies on you in the same exact way and gets tested in the same ways, too. So, Father, thank you for already working in uh, the midst of his mom's uh, life by having a successful surgery. Now gift her with the uh, healing abilities that she needs to physically grow stronger and now help him physically, emotionally, spiritually, to trust you in this moment that while away, uh, you've got it covered, God. Uh, So bless him as a son who cares and loves for his mom. Bless him as in his time of leading. And may we be receptive as we have been to learning more about uh, holy living in modern America. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to be a part of this, uh, this group. You know, it's uh, Dave or Danny or Diablo or whatever the heck his name is. And I, we're just, we're just talking about it at the break. You know, it's just, you have a different, uh, a different atmosphere here. I, I guess you know that, but uh, we do get to see he more than I, but we get to see uh, some other kinds of settings. And, it's special, and you've taken us in, and we're grateful for that. Not only did mom's uh, surgery go well this morning, but we've begun to see the hand of God in keeping me out of that area today, because if I had said to mom, mom, you've got to go to this nursing facility the doctor's recommending for two to three months, she would have said, I'm not going. I told you, you carry me out of that house. I'm not doing it. Uh, but but dad, dad and my daughter... Uh, worked it out they got her to agree to uh, two to three months in a transition kind of facility uh, before she's able to go back home and then my dad told my daughter let's get in the car and go over there right away and make sure they got room before the meds wear off <laughs> so, if if I'd have been there I'd have got in the midst of all that and messed it up so it's going well you know, it's always, a, you all have responded so actively to the things that I'm, uh, I'm teaching and suggesting and channeling our thinking on in these days that there have been several folks that, how old is mama? Mama's 87, dad's 88, and they've been living in their own home until now, so we're grateful for that. Uh, which, of these, which of these responses to respond to to the whole group, but... Uh, there's a couple of things that I have heard in the last 24 hours that I, I just want to respond to in front of all of you to make sure you know where I'm coming from. Uh, apparently, I said something the other day that was interpreted as me, me proclaiming myself to be a prophet. I think what it was about was this. I said it's hard to be prophetic and popular at the same time, and on this particular issue, I choose to be prophetic. And so I had an engaging conversation with a young lady, and let me me just share with you how I I see that, because it gives you some insight into me and how I prepare and how I put things together. Uh, I look at the Old Testament, and I think the prophets in the Old Testament, what made them prophets were what they said, not where they got the information. It seems to me that the big deal about Jeremiah was that he told it like it is. Uh, a kind of holy boldness, if you will, that Jeremiah, 
uh, and sometimes he had dreams and sometimes he had visions, but oftentimes, as you read through Jeremiah, it doesn't tell where, but, and the word of the Lord came to me and said, is, is the way it's prefaced. And I firmly believe, where, where did this stuff come from? This stuff came from hours and hours of study and prayer and conversation with others who are thinking along the same lines. I don't claim, you know, if you heard me say I'm a prophet, I don't claim to have some kind of fast track uh, dreams and visions that say this is what's going to happen in America. And that's part of the reason I feel comfortable to learn from you. Uh, I'm not sure we got it. Now, one of the places where I am still learning from you, somebody said to me the other day, in the 11-year siege of Jerusalem before they went off to Babylon, do you think Daniel and company were out there fighting? And I said, you know, I, I guess so. I hadn't thought about that. So the question is, you know, when do we go quietly, as Jeremiah says? At what point uh, do we become passive and uh, just accept the fact that we are a remnant? And I may not have the timing down on this. I, I hope I don't. And that's why I continue to call us and, and say to us, pray for revival. Pray I'm wrong. I, I don't want us to be a remnant. But I also think that what God is calling me to do in these days is to help prepare his people for the possibility that we may become a remnant. Uh, and I don't know where we're at in the timing. There was an 11-year siege of Jerusalem, and as I shared with somebody over table yesterday, I think this process that has brought us to this moment in America probably started in the 60s. Uh, something happened at Woodstock era and I was just barely old enough, I'm 65, so I was barely old enough to know something was going on in New York, uh, but wasn't old enough to be away from home, so I wasn't over there. Uh, so, but something began there, uh, a revolution of sorts uh, against what you and I have traditionally stood for. I, you know, some, some folks objected to the Obergefell versus Hodge uh, ruling, for example. Here's, here's how I'm analyzing that, what happened beginning in Woodstock is that the, the heterosexual community, including the church, has made a game out of marriage. Since 1960s, uh, the incident, the rate of divorce as a percentage of population is up about seven times. And there is absolutely no difference in the statistics between evangelical Christians and others. Uh, the incident of people living together outside of, of marriage is about 40 times what it was in the 60s. And the church, by and large, has just accepted that. It's just the way it is. So we have made a game out of marriage, and the homosexual community was simply saying, how come we can't play your game? And you know what? That, in that sense, I'm, I'm very sensitive to their request. Because when we made marriage a game, it is discriminatory for us to say certain people can't play our game. You can't play it, my game. Uh, so the issue is that we need to begin to take marriage seriously. We need to hang tough with regard to our understandings. And those are some of the kinds of things, I'm, I'm chasing rabbits now, some of the kinds of things that uh, uh, I've been wrestling with as some of you have challenged me and so on. What I think we're gonna find today is that the strategies that we learn from the original remnant, from the Babylonian remnant, the strategies for how they influenced uh, their culture are strategies you can use whether we're in the last days of the siege or the first days of the remnant. Doesn't matter. 
you can use these strategies. Or even if you're sitting back and saying, this guy is completely nuts. America's just like it's always been, and we're going to continue to behave like we've always been. You can still use these strategies. So I call you to the strategies of the remnant. Uh, many of you will recognize this woman. Others of you will recognize her name. This is Kim Davis. And Kim Davis made national headlines uh, with regard to her personal response to Obergefell versus Hodge. Kim is uh, the clerk of courts in Rowan County, Kentucky. And I taught in Kentucky not long ago. And they, I was calling it Rowan County, Kentucky. And they said, no, it's all one syllable, Rowan County, Kentucky. So I'm trying to get that right for those of you from the hills. Rowan County, Kentucky, she was the clerk of courts, and after the Obergefell versus Hodge ruling that gave the right to marriage to homosexual couples, the same as heterosexual couples, Kim said, I'm not issuing marriage certificates to homosexual couples. And a judge in her area heard a case that was brought by some folks and uh, said, uh, you can't do that, Kim. You have to treat everybody the same and you have to follow the Supreme Court ruling. So Kim, thought she was being exceedingly creative, and she said, our office isn't issuing any marriage certificates at all. We're going to treat everybody the same. And so suddenly the clerk of courts in Rowan County, Kentucky, is not issuing marriage licenses. Again, there was a challenge, and uh, she went to court, and the judge said, you have been elected to issue marriage licenses, among other things, and you will issue marriage licenses, or I'll hold you in contempt to court. And so, uh, long story short, she went to jail, in, uh, on a contempt of court charge. And it became very, very divisive across America, even in the church. Uh, I'm not going to take a poll because I don't want us to start in conflict, but the reality, even in this room, there's a difference of opinion about, about Kim. On the one hand, there were people who said, uh, she, well, a f uh, an influential presidential candidate called it the criminalization of Christianity, the fact that she went to jail. On the other hand, there were people who said she's discriminating and trying to use her Christianity as a way to hi hide. Uh, she's hiding behind her faith, in effect. Here's what happened. Five days in jail for contempt of court charges, and then Kim Davis comes out of jail with a new idea. She went to the office. She took her name off of all the, uh, all the uh, marriage license responses, all of the marriage licenses that were issued don't have her name on them anymore. And instead, she allowed a deputy clerk in her office to begin to issue the marriage licenses. So within five days, everything is business as usual in Rowan County, Kentucky, except Kim Davis's name is not associated with it. Now, here's what I want you to do. Think with me about this, not in terms of right or wrong. Should she or should she not? Uh, did she do the right thing or did she do the wrong thing? Now, it doesn't matter for our purposes. Did she change anything? Was her strategy effective? That's what I'm asking you. And you can say, I don't care, she should have done. Okay, I hear you. But my, my concern this morning is, how when you're not mainstream anymore, how when you're on the margins, can you make a difference in the culture? And I submit to you, Kim Davis is a great example of someone who took a gallant stand, a bold stand, and made absolutely no difference whatsoever in the way marriage licenses were issued in Rowan County, Kentucky. Clear? Understand my point? So what I'm asking myself is this. 
what are some strategies that we can use from the margins that are going to make a difference? What are some approaches we can take that are going to change the culture, that are going to give us more influence rather than less, that are not going to be divisive in terms of the church or the culture at large? What are some ways that we can make a difference? And that's why I invited you to go back and read the first chapter of Daniel. Because the first chapter of Daniel is one of the earliest days of the original exile, the Babylonian captivity. Remember from yesterday, 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell, and the best and the brightest and the strongest, they, the young people especially, were taken in captivity off to Babylon for a reorientation program. We're going to get their minds right so that they can work in, in the, the palaces and in the government uh, for Babylon. But we got to get them to think like Babylonians first. And so I suggested to you that these uh, Israelites in Babylon are a remnant, an original remnant. Scripture calls them a remnant. And they're not unlike you and me in that these are people who have no real power, no real influence. They can't say to the king when they first come down from Jerusalem, king, we think you ought to do it this way because that's the way we've always done it over home. And the king's going to say, go back to the reorientation program and take a refresher course because you're not in Jerusalem anymore, you're in Babylon. And so these guys, uh, Daniel and three fellows that came to be known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are in the program, if you will. And the program dictates everything. What they eat, when they sleep, what they drink, what they do. It's, it's a teaching training, an intensive teaching training program. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. A whole lot of difference of opinion among uh, commentator writers and theologians about what this is about. Some folks think this has to do with uh, dietary laws of the Jew. Uh, it looks to me like there's something more than that going on here. It's not just uh, the day they had ham sandwiches that Daniel said, I'm not eating ham sandwiches. No, there's something more than that going on here. And I don't know, some possibilities. Maybe Daniel decided he's, he's supposed to test the system and see how much power and authority they actually have. Or maybe the king's uh, food had become the god uh, for some of the people around him. Uh, maybe he looked around him and saw uh, that it was just not the right kind of... I don't know what's going on. Here's what I know. That Daniel saw something and said, I don't want any part of it. But he's powerless. Because he's in a remnant. Because he's on the fringes. Because he's not mainstream anymore. He can't say, we're not eating any of that. We've all gotten together. He can't form a little union among all those folks and decide we're not doing it. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see you in worse condition than the youths are who are of your own age? So then they'd endanger my head with the king. Thus Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Test, test us for 10 days. I like it, the NIV. It'll help make a point in a moment. Please, please test your servants for 10 days. See it? Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants 
according to whatever you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. I see five strategies here that Daniel used to influence the people who are really in power and really in authority, and there are five strategies that you and I can use in modern America. The first is what I call the strategy of unshakable conviction. Unshakable conviction. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved. That word, I'm told, is a word that means he contemplated over a period of time and made a strong decision. This is not just an impulsive kind of a thing. I don't like that junk. No, and this is not uh, a seat-of-the-pants, fly-by-night kind of response. This is not impulse at all. That word resolve means that Daniel gave careful thought and developed this unshakable conviction. He, we don't know why. He said to the, to the leadership, I'm not going to eat that. What I do know is this. It was the first and last time that teenage boys ever refused food. <laughs> but, But we know that Daniel's unshakable conviction, for whatever reason is, we're not, we, don't, we don't feel like we ought to eat that. Now, American strategy, for those of us who have been mainstream and are not willing to admit that we may be a remnant these days, when we come to that unshakable conviction and say, I'm not eating that junk, and the rest of us aren't going to eat it either. We're going to get together, and this is the way it's going to be. So you tell the king, and they would have said, out with you. Bring in somebody that we can, we can deal with. Daniel's unshakable convictions didn't go away. You know, I asked you yesterday to be working on a list of things you'd be willing to die for. I hope some of you are taking that seriously. That's an, that's an ongoing assignment. We're never going to call in the papers on that one and grade them. Uh, that's an assignment that I hope over the course of the, of the week and, and into the days that are following, you'll be thinking about, what are the, where, do I, where do I draw the line? But Daniel's unshakable conviction is not the things he's willing to die for. It's the things he's decided to live for. A separate list, but one you need to be working on. What are the things you have decided to live for? Let me give you an example. A couple of semesters ago, uh, I was getting, it was, uh, it was the December time, and you know, uh, faculty love to have the end of the semester come. Uh, it's time for Christmas, and we go down to Gulf Shores, and the kids come down, and we have a party for a couple of weeks, and that kind of thing, and so I was really looking forward to that, and I, I find that I'm able to get my grades posted a lot easier in December than I am in April or May because I'm, I'm ready to go. It's, it's fun. So I got my grades posted, and I had no more than pushed the button that posted the grades on, on the electronic blackboard, the learning studio, and I got an email from one of my students. Dr. Neff, I, I don't know when you're planning to leave, but I got to talk to you. When can I set up a time? I want to come in and see, I want to see you. He didn't even say about what. I'm just a little bit paranoid about that kind of thing. We got some really good students at Indiana Western University. I haven't had a bit of the kind of trouble that's in the back of my head, but I'm thinking, whoa, I post grades and this guy's coming right now. Uh, I am one of the, what, what did he call it? I took the board away. I'm, I'm one of those conflict fakers. You know, I do anything to avoid conflict. I don't want, to, I don't want this guy, I don't need this guy. Just go cool down someplace about your grade, and then, you know, when we come back in January, we'll talk. I didn't even look to see what the kid had for a grade. 
But instead, I sent him an email and said, well, yeah, I can make time for you this afternoon. What's on your mind before we set up an appointment? And I got this email from Micah. Dr. Neff, it was extremely important for scholarship that I earn an A in your class. And in order to do that, I needed to get a 90 on the final exam. But I ended up with an 81 on the final exam, which left me nine points, less than 1% short of an A. I was sorrowfully disappointed. However, I just got on Learning Studio, and it showed my 91.1, but my final grade is listed as an A. My percentage score doesn't reflect that A. Therefore, I want to come in and make sure that you didn't make some kind of mistake. Although I need that letter grade desperately, I'm not willing to accept it if you posted it accidentally, if I didn't earn an A. That would be unethical of me, and I feel obligated to tell you you may have made a mistake. Yeah, that's what I said. Wow. The bottom line is I always round the grades up no matter where they are, 91.1 is a 92, and 92 is a low A. So he got an A by the skin of his teeth, but he earned the A. But what, it's not important. What's important is this kid had decided what he's going to live for. This 19-year-old had said, I'm going to be a man of integrity no matter what it costs me. And I began to think about where that boy's going to go. I began to think about the possibility that he might have an employer in a secular office someplace someday with whom he has very little influence because of his Christian faith. But I submit to you, when they begin to sense this kind of thing in Micah, he's going to have all kinds of influence. They're going to know we can trust him. See what Micah thinks. You understand what I'm talking about? This is a guy who has, who has made up his mind. This is what I stand for. Notice there's no Jesus or read in the scripture in his whole email. It's just, here I stand. I'm going to be ethical. And if you made a mistake, Neff, you're not going to mess with my life goal. I'm still going to be ethical. That's pretty cool stuff. That's what I'm talking about in terms of this unshakable conviction. What do you stand for? Where will you not compromise? Where will you, even if you can get away with it, say, no, this is where I'm at. My worldview makes a difference in the way I operate. The strategy of unshakable conviction. Second strategy that I see in this, in this uh, passage is what I'm calling the strategy of extraordinary civility. In verse 8, it's interesting that contrary to the way we might respond or behave, they ask the chief of the eunuchs for permission. I mentioned when I was reading it, verse 12, in the NIV, I don't know what's the best translation, but I know this. I really like that please in the first line in the NIV. Please, could we just try something? There is a, a civility about Daniel and company that challenges the way we Americans typically think. We have become a culture that is noting its own incivility. 
some time ago at the Epcot Center, a group of women got into a fight over who was first in line at a major attraction. And when someone in the press called their attention to it at Epcot and said, you know, this is Donnybrook outside here, well, what's going on? The people in PR at Epcot Center said, well, it was really hot that day. And, and I, I'm thinking that they probably just got a little carried away because it was so hot, really. So the fact that it's hot in the tabernacle last night is reason for us to come to blows? That's an excuse for incivility? What are we going to do with a, a similar time frame when there was a, a brawl, a Donnybrook, in a supermarket, air-conditioned, in Atlanta? People got into a fight about who was next in the checkout line. It's, it's, the, it's the way we seem to be behaving to one another. This incivility has become a way of life, not a political statement. I, I trust that you believe me when I say if the parties had been reversed, I still would use this example. When somebody yells out on national television at an address where the President of the United States is speaking and says, you're a liar, then incivility has become a way of life in America. He didn't dis diss the President of the United States that you may or may not like. He dissed the office of the President. And that, that mentality has become the way we think. By contrast, last summer we were coming home from a conference in New Jersey and we stopped at one of the battlefields uh, of the war between the states and I found this little book, George Washington's Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior. Have you read it? You've seen it. You've seen the book. This is fascinating. This is really good stuff. There are in this little book 110 rules for decent civil behavior, according to the founder of our nation. Some of them are just phenomenal. Speak not evil of those who are absent, for it is unjust. Or Every action done in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those that are present. Guess what? As a result of the internet, every action is done in company, whether you like it or not. We need to respect one another, is what George Washington thought. Here's one I'm going to save for my freshmen. I'm going to just read this at the beginning and hope some of the freshman girls will catch it. Put not off your clothes in the presence of others, nor go out of your chamber half-dressed. <laughs> Cover yourself up when you come to class. And this one's for some of you. Sleep not when others are speaking. <laughs> well, it's just a fun little read, but the reality is that these rules of civility are kind of lost in modern America. But there's no... Oh, yeah, it's on Amazon, I'm pretty sure. Does anybody know for positive? I believe you can get it at Amazon, just go on Amazon.com, uh, but I know you can buy it in the state parks. I, I found it at the battlefield over at Gettysburg in the bookstore. At any rate, and it's fun. It's like, unless you're going to use it in class, it's good for one read, but it's a lot of fun that one read. You could probably read it standing at the bookstore, as a matter of fact. <laughs> anyway, here's the point. There's no law against civility. It's not the way we do things in America anymore, but you could be different. We could treat one another with decency, with respect, with civility. 
We could treat those that disagree with us with that kind of an approach. And it seems to me that what we're, what we're seeing is that if we were people of civility, extraordinary civility, we might get a hearing. We used to get a hearing because we said, this is what the Word says. But nobody cares what the Word says anymore. We've been marginalized. We're a remnant. Now we have to earn the hearing, and I submit to you that Daniel did that with extraordinary civility. We have, at Indiana Western University, a basketball program that I'm exceedingly proud of. I'm not any part of it. I get some of the basketball team on my front row in one of my classes, but that's as close as I get to it. All the credit, in my opinion, goes to a guy by the name of Greg Tonegal. Greg is the men's <coughs> Excuse me. Is the men's basketball coach, has been for several years, and the last uh, three or four four years, I guess, he's won two national championships. We play in the NAIA Division Two, and uh, Greg has put together some phenomenal teams. Excuse me. I heard him speak a while back, and uh, someone asked in this men's group that he was addressing, Greg, <coughs> have you got any opportunities to move as a result of your success? Greg said, oh yeah, in fact, every year I get two or three calls, some of them from Division I schools, NCAA. And everybody in the room was, wow, yeah, they're really impressed. And Greg said, <clears throat> and so what I do, they call and say, would you be interested in applying? And I said, you bet, that sounds great, I really am interested in applying. But before I apply, I think it's only fair to tell you about my coaching philosophy, then if you're still interested, I'll come out. I don't want you to spend the money on an airplane ticket if my coaching philosophy doesn't work for your university. And Greg then describes what he calls the me three philosophy. He said, I, I go out and recruit kids, usually, who think they're God's gift to basketball. I end up with a lot of boys uh, who have come from small schools and who, if they hadn't been there, their team wouldn't have come anywhere near a state championship, but because they're there and because they're good, then everybody looks to them. They are the kingpin that holds the team together. And he said, I tell them during the recruiting process, but they don't get it. So the first thing I have to teach them is, you are now number three. Everybody on this team will understand that Jesus Christ is number one. We worship together, we pray together, we go on missions trips together, we live and love together because Jesus Christ is number one in our lives. Then the second thing I tell them is that everybody else on this team is one notch ahead of you. Everybody on this team but you is number two. So when we have celebrations, when we give great awards, when we look at stats at halftime in a game, I'm a lot more interested in who's got the most assists than I am who's got the most points. And Greg said, I tell these guys then, if there's anything left after Jesus and your teammates, then I'll clap for you. And Greg said, when I tell them that philosophy of coaching, there's usually a long pause on the other end from the athletic directors that have called. And then they say, well, thank, thanks for laying that out for me. I think I'll find somebody else. They're not interested in that philosophy. But I'm interested in that philosophy. Can you imagine what a difference it would make in our interactions together, or more importantly for our topic, our interactions with our communities? 
if we'd adopt the me three philosophy. What I see in a lot of people who want to argue with me and debate with me about whether or not we're a remnant, whether or not we've been pushed to the margins and how we ought to respond, I see a lot of people arguing, I'm number one. And they better, I know my rights. I'm not going down without a fight. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sue. And this is where it's going to. That's I'm number one. What if we made Jesus number one and the other folks in our communities number two? And then if there's anything left, we take it. Do you see what a difference that would make? A strategy difference that would make? A strategic difference that would make in terms of the way you and I live our lives? And listen, as last I checked, it's not against the law. The community may think you're crazy, <coughs> but it's not against the law to make yourself number three. You can still do that. It's still okay. What a strategy, the strategy of extraordinary civility. A third strategy that I see in Daniel is a strategy of proposed alternatives. Look in verses 12 and 13. This is where he goes to the chief of the eunuchs and says, Please test your servants for ten days. and Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance make the decision for you. That's basically what he's doing. He proposes a test. What a difference between that and it's my way or the highway. There's only one right way to do it, and in America, we've always done it the right way. And so I don't care where this culture's going, we're still doing it my way. I think we're going to have to get over that. I, I worked in leadership and in management positions enough to know that being, being the boss means that you get a lot of problems. In fact, that's what it means to be the boss. You get to solve everybody else's problem. People are constantly coming in. I got this problem. I got that problem. And I know, for me, I began to pay careful attention to someone who would come in and say, boss, we got a problem, but I think I know what we can do to solve it. A proposed alternative. Whoa. And that's the person, isn't it? Managers, bosses, that's the person that gets your ear. Somebody who says, I think I know how to solve it. By contrast, we in America today uh, continue in our my way or the highway. We've been through a bit of a confrontational time at uh, College Wesleyan Church where I worship, where Nancy and I go when we're at home. Uh, the pastoral staff, probably a year and a half ago now, uh, decided that it was best if all three of our morning worship services were identical we had been doing venues. We'd been having different worship style at 8.30 than we did at 10, than we did at 11.30. And in fact, in the 10 and 11.30 services, we had uh, done the sermon by television, by closed circuit television, so there were various worship styles. So we were doing like eight or 10 different worship styles on Sunday morning. And the leadership said, we need to all be moving the same direction, all be on the same page. And so we'll have three services. They'll all be in the sanctuary, and they'll all be the same. Well, there aren't enough hymns there for some of us old people. And the, the music doesn't appeal to me anymore like it used to. There's just not enough hymns for us old people. And uh, some folks are a lot more. I'm, I'm one of those, uh, what do you call us, uh, fakers, you know? I, I don't do conflict. I don't do conflict, and so I just sit quiet, fume on the inside. Oh, Nancy knows how I feel about it, but nobody else does. I just, you know, sit there. But there aren't a lot of us around, and so there are a lot of people who go, oh, I don't like the music, Steve. I think we ought to do this. And how come we had to give that up? 
And Steve told me some time ago, Dr. Deneff said to me some time ago, you know, in a year of conflict and listening to this nonsense, I have not had one person who's come in and say, I know this is what you're trying to accomplish. Here's another way we could do it. Nobody proposing alternatives. Or look at it from, an, from a national issue. Uh, transgender bathrooms have occupied our attention for six months, nine months, well, you know, and most of it is about uh, three-tenths of one percent of the population saying, we want to go wherever we want to go. And the rest of us saying, no, we've always done it this way, and you can't do that, you can't have... Why doesn't somebody come up with the idea that we just make them all individual places with a lock on the door, and everybody can go where they want to go? Is that really that tough? Oh, it cost us a lot of money. Look, it's going to cost you something to be a part of a democratic republic. It's going to cost you something to be a part of a heterogeneous population. So why don't we make, why don't we lead from the margins and say, here's a proposal. We're going to do this in our churches or we're going to do this in our Christian schools. Would that really be that tough? Maybe there are some issues here I'm not understanding, but it seems to me that we have come to a, a mentality. I'd rather fight about it than I would to find a way to get along with people. Daniel and company came up with these proposed alternatives, and those proposed alternatives are what gave them authority and power, even from the margins. Here's one that some of you are going to like until you understand what I'm talking about about it. I see in Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego what I'm going to call a holy boldness. But I'm not talking about that in your face, shake your fist, say, this is the way God said it. I'm not eating that junk. But instead, there's a holy boldness that's below the surface in Daniel. Think about it for a moment. Test us for 10 days and see if we don't look as good or better than the other guys who are eating the stuff that the king's put out. What if they had gotten faint in that 10-day period? Or what if, they, what if they just caught a virus and they just said it was because they weren't eating the right stuff? What if their complexion hadn't been more ruddy in 10 days, but instead they had looked rather pale and sickly? I think of holy boldness this way. Daniel proposed an alternative, and the basis of that alternative, listen to the words, was trust in God. For all too often for us, the idea of a holy boldness is, I'm trusting in the laws of the land, and I'm trusting in me, and I know what I'm I know my right. That, that's not boldness. That's incivility. What if instead we developed a kind of holy boldness that said, I don't know where this is going, but I believe God knows, and I'm, I'm on his team. I'm going to try this became a matter of life and death for these guys in just a few days. If you turn over to Daniel chapter 3, you discover that Nebuchadnezzar has said, uh, everybody bow down to this, uh, this uh, image or we're going to uh, we're going to throw you in the burning fiery furnace. I'm looking for the verse. Hang on. 16, verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king... Sorry. 3.16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, listen to the words again, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, that is if we die in the furnace, 
The God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Do you hear the holy boldness there? God's able. Throw me in the fire. It's okay. I don't know whether I'm going to die or not, but God knows, and I'm on his team. It'll work. The God who we believe in is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. But I love this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, will not serve your gods or worship the image. <coughs> in effect, what these guys are saying is, I have a kind of boldness inside my heart that trusts God. I'm going to do what God said to do, and God's going to take care of it. Let me illustrate it by suggesting uh, two faith promisers. Have you ever been in one of those faith promise situations, maybe in your local church, or maybe an independent missions kind of setting? Uh, one of those places where they say, how much will you give over the next year if God provides, what will you do? Well, this is a faith promise. You, don't need, you may not have the money, but it's a faith promise. And on one side of the room, there's a guy sitting there who says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I got to do something here, so I'm going to do five bucks a week. Because if God doesn't provide an extra five bucks a week, then I can always skip coffee on the way to work three days and come up with the five bucks. That guy is trusting in himself. He's trusting in his budget. On this side, there's a fellow who says, I don't know why, but I believe God is telling me to write $50 a week. And there's no way in the world that I've got an extra 50 bucks a week. I can't do 50 bucks. If God doesn't provide, I'm sunk. I don't have it. Which of those two is really doing a faith promise? Which of those two really has a holy boldness? It's the guy who writes down 50 bucks a week, though he has no idea where it's coming from. You see what I'm calling holy boldness? So what I'd like for us to do <coughs> is to get over the notion that holy boldness is some kind of an in-your-face, my way or the highway attitude, and instead it says, I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to quietly do what God has called me to do. I need to move along quickly. Personal relationships. Did you notice, as you uh, listened to the story or read the story, in verse 9, it's explained, I'm in chapter 1, verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Bottom line, chief of the eunuchs just liked this kid. He built a relationship with him. And so when he said, let's test it, let's try it, Chief of the eunuchs said, man, I really like him. Let's, let's go ahead and go for it. Because Daniel had built a personal relationship with the chief of the eunuchs. They say that confession is good for the soul. I have discovered that it may be good for the soul, but it's very hard on the reputation. But nevertheless, I want to tell you where this point came from. Kevin mentioned to you, that we met uh, some time ago out at St. Simon's Island at a prayer conference. And in the course of that prayer conference, Kevin, I don't know if it was even significant enough that you remember it, but it really spoke to me. Uh, the speaker said to us, I'd like for you to make a list of your 10 most wanted. He said, I'd like for you to make a list of the people that you most want to come to Christ in the next year. People that you're going to invest some time and some energy and some prayer the ten most wanted is what he called it. And he gave us some time in one of the seminars to, to work on our list of the ten most wanted. I don't have a list of the ten most wanted, but it was an extremely revealing experience for me. I work with kids that 95 plus percent of them are Christians when they come to the university. 
I work with a faculty that are all professing, believing Christians and sign a statement of faith on a regular basis. I go to College Wesleyan Church, one of the largest and best Wesleyan churches in America, I believe, and I am friends with a group of people that we meet with on Sunday night there. I'm in a Sunday class with about 50 people who are totally sold out and dedicated to the Lord. My family is made up of people who trust God with all their hearts, souls, mind, and strength. And I couldn't, I couldn't list 10 people in my sphere of influence that didn't know Jesus. That's a tragedy that ought not to be. See, a few decades ago, that was acceptable because we did evangelism one to many. We did evangelism by people standing on the platform and saying, y'all come down and meet Jesus. We did evangelism by saying, we got this great program at our church and y'all come. And they actually came. But now we're in a time when we say, we got this great program at our church and they say, yeah, right, thanks for the invite. And they move the other way. That's if they're really being civil that day. Evangelism isn't being done one to many. I talked to a guy who, who's who's big, his, his, his position in a large church, not my church, but another church, his position is evangelism pastor. And I said, are you teaching people like door-to-door evangelism? And he said, not anymore. He said, man, that's a good way to get them in trouble. There's no way. I said, what are you teaching folks when you're teaching them personal evangelism? He said, I'm teaching the same thing you do in interpersonal communication class. I'm teaching them build relationships to sit down over a cup of coffee with people and talk about what's going on in your life and what's going on in my life so that in time we build a relationship that causes them to be interested in what I'm interested in. That's what Daniel and company did. And I submit to you, whether we're there yet or we're still just moving that direction, as we move from the, mar to, from the center to the margins, more and more and more important that we develop relationships with people who don't know Christ. I've done a couple of things in response. I'm still not sure I could come up with the 10 most wanted. Uh, but one of the things I've done in response is I said yes uh, when I really wanted to say no when, when I was asked to serve on the board at the Grant County Rescue Mission. And so now I'm downtown on a fairly regular basis with guys whose lives are a mess because of addictions. I, I don't even have categories for dealing with those guys. I have lived in a bubble, but it's time to get out of the bubble, church. If we're going to make a difference, it's time to get out of the bubble. It's time to start building friendships and relationships with people that don't understand your God and don't respect your God and don't know your God. Because when they learn to understand you and respect you and know you, they'll be interested in what makes you tick and they'll be interested in your God. Those are the strategies that Daniel used. And I think it's, it's interesting as I look at them. It's interesting that those are strategies that you can use if I'm right that we're a remnant. But they're also strategies you can use if some of the opposition is right. That we're not there yet. And we need to go to court. We need to argue. Well, use these strategies before you go. Because these strategies are biblical these strategies are strategies that work, no matter what time it is in American culture. I want you to look at a case 
in application, just to see if we're getting it and to continue to allow people to share uh, their points of view. This is the one that uh, I call the case of the fired trooper. This is a real life case that came out. Uh, I first got associated with it, Channel 13 out of Indianapolis, and learned more about uh, the case. I, I dug up uh, some other data, but let me do, I, what I've put on page 19, if you're one of the folks that's got the program book, and if not, just kind of sidle up to one of those people and they'll show you the case, uh, because we're gonna analyze this case together. Brian Hamilton had served 14 years in the Indiana State Police and he was fired on April 7th last year, 2016, after he st people that he stopped for routine traffic offenses filed complaints, two separate instances. In the first case, a motorist complained that Hamilton issued a warning and then asked what church she attended and if she was saved. In a separate complaint, and by the way, in between there, Hamilton was called in, the complaint was, was filed, Hamilton was called in and was told, you can't, you can't talk religion when you're patrolling. When you give her the warning and forget about the faith stuff, do that someplace else. In a separate complaint, after that one-on-one uh, -on -one with his boss, uh, Hamilton was accused of giving a motorist a pamphlet on how to become a Christian along with her ticket. So he gave her a tract. That's, that's a, Channel 13 talk for a track. He gave her a ticket and a track all at the same time. And so she filed a complaint and the ex-trooper reportedly responded to his firing by saying, I'm just doing what the Lord told me to do. You can't change what the Lord tells you to do, he said. Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter responded, he's entitled to go and advocate his position, but not as an employee of the state and particularly not when he's on duty. What I'd like for you to do in your group, in a group, is just answer the basic question. Should Hamilton have been fired? Is he guilty? Is he a victim of religious discrimination? I'd like for you to find four other people so you're in a group of five. That'll give us enough cross-fertilization, I hope, to get the opinions. And then a warning, if there are any police officers among us. <laughs> no, I'm serious. If, if there are members of a sheriff's department someplace or even a town marshal or somebody on a state state highway patrol in one of the three or four states that this camp seems to serve, you get to speak first, so get ready. I wanna hear what you have to say. But get in a group, will you? And talk about Brian Hamilton. What kind of, we'll give that, we'll give that four or five minutes, and then I wanna hear what you think. All right, because of my hearing problem, I've become a pretty adept uh, person at reading lips, and many of your groups have gone to tell them about your recent tickets. Am I right? Ah, well, and then I was just being... Anyway, here's, here's, what I'd like, here's what I'd like to know. The question was, should Brian Hamilton have been fired? We want to talk about this in terms of, of uh, the, alternate, or the, the, the uh, strategies that Daniel used, but we also want to talk about it just in terms of the overall thing. But first, and I've learned this from experience, I've done this seminar in a lot of local churches, are there police officers in our midst? Anyone? Anyone? Will you speak to, do you mind speaking to us about this case? What, what do you think should happen? Tell, tell us why you're, I mean, where you're a police officer or what, you, tell us about yourself. I was a police officer in uh, Indiana for four years. I left that. Uh, uh, at what level? Sheriff's Department or? Sheriff's Department. Sheriff's Department. The county okay. of Huntington. Very good, thank um, you. And how do you see this case? I don't believe that he should have handed out the track. There are other ways for us to be able to do the, the ministry of the Lord to other people. 
Right. And um, I had that opportunity, but uh, I think, but we don't know the side, as we discussed, we don't know what led up to this for him to do this. We didn't know what was going on in his life, church and things that way, which may have put that burning desire in his heart to be able to make that all happen. Very so good. we're kind of torn between it, but from my experience, there are ways to do it, ways to have an impact on the motorist that you're stopping, ways to be able to make yeah. that happen that anyone in the, as a police officer should be able to do and be effective in their ministry to the, uh, the people that they're ministering to. Yeah, very good. And, you know, hats off, to, hats off to you for the very charitable way you said that. I, I learned to call on the police officers first. I was teaching at a, at a real small church down in, in southern Indiana, and there was a guy there who was retired state highway patrol and was now a bailiff in a court. And I just kind of launched in the case, and the people were talking about their opinion, should he or shouldn't he kind of thing. And this guy finally had enough. And he said, no, that dude is a jerk, and they should have fired him. And, and he just kind of went off on it. And I've since asked in two or three uh, seminars for the police officers to speak, and they're, they're of one mind. I mean, this, this guy and his behavior, this is not a question of religious freedom. This is a question of him giving others who wear the uniform a bad name, it seems to me. Somebody else back there wanted to speak. And I, I appreciate the, the point of view that, hey, we don't know what's going on in this guy's life, uh, th that, you know, may maybe we ought to, I guess I made the assumption that if there was something there, that when he sat down with the supervisor the first time, that was, that was unpacked, and, and we were giving him plenty of space to get things straight. But, th you know, I want you to be my boss, uh, frankly. That, you know, that's, that's the approach I'd like. Could you bring, we need to use the mic because we're, we got people who are trying to. Uh, she simply said, venues. "He's an awesome guy." I can't help but relate this to public education with the mandates that happened there. Um, first of all, I want to say I was called at the altar at Asbury College to be a public school teacher. It was as clear as a ministry call. In my early years, there were times when we could line up the kids and they would say grace before we'd go down for lunch. And it changed. And the change still is important. At one point in time, when the Gideon Bibles couldn't be passed out anymore, I was sharing. I wrote a letter to a school board member who was a really good Christian and a friend. ACLU is organized. And they have spotted people at hip places. And there's no defense without a lot of money. And without the money, the school districts can't fight those things. On the other hand, our public schools are very diverse now. And if we do some Christian um, things, we're going to have to honor every other creed right, and, right, right. and thing. And um, I still support public school. It's a mission field. Yeah. 
And, you know, Christian teachers are there, but you can also witness. I've had kids say, because I lived at Bayshore Camp, they knew I was a Christian, you know. Um, it's more than that. You can put the golden rule anywhere you want. You can do things. And what, what you're teaching us there, to tie it to this case just a little bit, uh, we talked about uh, the fact that Daniel proposed an alternative. Uh, and uh, we were just talking back here while, while you all were visiting together about what's, what's the alternative here? Brian Hamilton, and this is important, you, you point out to it, this is important because those of you who teach in public schools uh, and other kinds of public uh, positions, you need alternatives. So if Brian Hamilton is wrong, and I agree, I think he's dead wrong in what he did and should have not been retained, if he's wrong, then what's the alternative? If you're his boss, what do you say to him uh, in terms of what should he do to live out his faith? Or Kevin said, I'm thinking if this guy's in my congregation and he comes and says, I'm gonna get fired because what should Kevin tell him in terms of, of an alternative ministry? Yes. <coughs> We, we talked a little bit about, because he said God told him to do it, and maybe God did tell him to do it, but if God told him to do it, then he had to be ready to accept the consequence of that. And I think in America today, we look at what's right or wrong, and we think if the people are right, they shouldn't have to accept any consequences. You know, like Kim Davis went to jail. Yeah. Right or wrong, she went to jail. Yeah. Um, somebody might choose to stay in jail for, yeah. and, uh, you know. So when, if God tells you to do something, he should, if God told him, hand that pamphlet to that person, then he should do it if he really felt that's what God told him to do. But then he, he needs to be ready to accept that consequence. Okay. Back here, back here, Scott. Question or comment? Tim Coleman, Sr. Um, I'll just say I work in the school system too. I do a different thing. Um, I was working as lunch supervisor. So um, as far as me, I mean, as far as him should be fired, whether he should or shouldn't um, is, you know, different opinions of people. Um, I think, you know, he should try to go sue for religious freedom. That's just my opinion on that one. But there are different ways of, uh, of doing it. And I just know I find that there come situations when I'm working with these kids that come up, that um, I can interject God in that situation. Okay. Or um, sometimes my demeanor around the school, you know, will cause the kids to ask, you know, about Jesus and um, what I think and my witness, and I'll talk to them about that. So there are other ways um, that you can come up with um, to get Jesus name out there because we have to do something because if we don't then we're going to be even more marginalized than we are now. That's exactly so. right. Well spoken. Yeah. Right over here wants to respond. I want to say it. We belong to Christian Motorcycle Association and uh, our ministry is to motorcyclists and sometimes a lot of times, 
we'll go into bars and places like that to talk to people. But we say, first of all, we have to earn the right to speak to people. We don't come in with Bibles blaring and our holy music and all that. We have to earn the right first to be able to, to speak to people. And I feel that the, the officer, the same thing. He did not earn the right to speak to that motorist. Yeah. Uh, he presented his track. That's as far as I could see what I've read there. Yeah, yeah, for what little data we've got here. I, and I piggyback on what you said, not only earn the right, but it seems to me that one of these, among the issues here, this is a question of civility. Um, you know, incivility is not always and screaming and, and shaking your fist. Uh, incivility involves not following the rules of, the accepted rules of culture. And I would submit to you that what Hamilton did uh, is an act of incivility. Uh, he's not following. Let me, let, me, let me change the case just a little bit because I'm seeing some perplexed looks. How would you feel about it if he pulled you over and then invited you to his mosque? You get the point? And that's why I would say that what he did is an act of incivility and so what are the alternatives? What could he do? How, how, how would you counsel him as his pastor or a friend? Uh, what, are the, what are some, Daniel, remember, used a proposed alternative. That's, that's how he influenced. So we need to get better at finding proposed alternatives. Go ahead. That's what we talked about. We looked at these different, um, you know, at our five different strategies. And... You know, you start at number one, okay? He had an unshakable conviction yes, he that did. he needed to share. That's, that's okay. That's wonderful. But then it's how do you do it? Um, through extraordinary civility? Well, not all police officers are extraordinarily civil when you get pulled over. And, um, and this is just a truth. This is... Um, you know, something that maybe you haven't experienced or, but, but, you know, my heart rate picks up if I see a police car behind me, and it's not because I'm doing anything wrong. Um, but the other thing is proposed alternatives. It's, you know, if he would have said, you know, um, instead of introducing his faith, he could have said, you could have blessed other people by going slower by not making a left-hand turn in front of traffic, by whatever the thing, you could have made other people around you safer. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, that's still um, supporting what he's talking about, and, and I think it's talking about his holy boldness. And, and I don't think anybody has a problem if someone says, well, bless you, drive safely. You know, I mean, there are ways, and... I, I want to I challenge that just a little bit. Not that I necessarily think it's wrong. Right. I'm, I want to challenge that on the basis of effectiveness. Remember, we are now in an age where effective evangelism comes from personal relationships. And, you know, if I deserve a ticket, okay, give me a ticket. But I didn't, I didn't pull over to develop a personal relationship with the officer. I pulled over because you have authority here and you told me I gotta. 
And in, in, in the officer's defense, I talked to a deputy sheriff the other day, Paulding County, Ohio, uh, who, who picked up a guy at 114 miles an hour on, on State Road 24 between Fort Wayne and Toledo. Just to, just to apprehend the dude, he put his life at risk. And, uh, you know, I'm... I, can I, can I speak? Per, yeah, go, please. Oh, I got the microphone. Well, you know, the Jesus way is incarnational ministry. Yes. You know, he came to be with us. There used to be a time that police officers, firemen had to live in the same communities as they serve. Some of that's a little bit more flexible now. Uh, some of us live in larger communities than smaller communities. But, you know, what makes the newspapers these days that touches my heart is when we read the stories of how the policemen bought gifts or pulled a person over, but instead of giving them a ticket, went and bought them a child seat, you know, at Walmart out of their own monies. Um, it's these kinds of, let's call them acts of kindness that are oftentimes reported in, in the newspapers, many times in our community papers as well. But uh, you don't always have to put the uh, uniform on to be able to build relationships with people, you know, in our school systems or at other places, so that you became in some locations more facial recognized, uh, you know, as you then go out with your job and your uniform on. But Matter kind of, of build, building a relationship and, earn, what did you say, earning the right, earning yeah. the right to speak. Without the uniform on. Yeah, yeah. So right. that when you put it on. And I learned this. I, I don't know how, how the deputy back here will respond, but when I, when I suggested, well, maybe one of the things a guy could do is to, you know, share at the local youth group or the Christian uh, Campus Crusade for Christ or something like that. And I was thinking in terms of he's wearing his uniform to do that. And one of the state police uh, that I talked to about this case said, not in the uniform. The uniform belongs to the state of Indiana. Uh, okay, we got just you know, a few a minutes here, left. A few minutes left. So okay, yeah, well, keep thank that you. in time thank with you. your one, wind up. One last word. Here we go. Yeah, Jerry, <clears throat> Jerry and I were up in the thumb for some reason, and we're on M46 uh, west of Kingston. And... Uh, I wasn't paying any attention, I was just going home. And I met a state police. And they turned around and I looked down, I was going over 65 to 55. And she pulled me over and, and came up and very nice young lady. And she said, I need your license and registration. Took it, came back, and she said, Mr. Tibbetts, you realize how fast you're going? Yes, I do, because I looked down. And uh, she said, slow down, slow down. And she says, uh, like, I want you to drive 55. I says, I'll drive 54. No, drive 55. That's the speed limit. That's okay if you drive that way. <laughs> but just when you, when you start speeding, just think of me and that I ask you to go 55. I have never forgot that girl. It's yeah. probably seven, eight yeah. months. Yeah. Very good. Thank you very much for your participation. Thanks for your input. Tomorrow we want to talk about the investments of the remnant. Where are you going to make investments uh, as, a, as a member of the remnant? And then on Friday we're going to look at some very specific instructions, Jeremiah 29, that God gave to the remnant. Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning. Thank you for folks who have been so attentive and have participated so willingly. Uh, bless us now as we go our separate ways through the afternoon. We pray for safety across the camp. Uh, we pray that you might continue to anoint and empower those uh, that will speak to us tonight, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.